Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the span of a single lifetime, light pollution stemming from artificial light at night has severed the connection with the stars that we've had since the dawn of time. With the nocturnal biosphere significantly altered, light's anthropogenic influence has compelled millions of people to seek out the last remaining dark skies. Marlin's new book, Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the, La- and the Dark Sky Movement, explores the growth of astrotourism industry, identifies star seeker trends, and recounts how the stars have shaped civilizations. Utah is a destination for astrotourism and heavily involved in the Dark Sky Movement. And so today we're going to talk with Marlin about meteor storms, eclipses, auroras, other celestial phenomena along with the 2024 Great North American Eclipse. We welcome into the program uh, now, Marlon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you uh, so much. We're, and you're joining us from uh, your home in Hawaii, is it? On the Big Island, yes. It's 5 a.m. here. Thank you for joining us so early, your time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So you're on the Big Island. Uh, where, are you near Hilo? Where, where are you? I'm on the southeastern shore. I'm about 45 minutes from Hilo on the um, the southeastern coastline in a district called Kalapana. And uh, four miles uh, going west was the uh, lava flow from uh, the 2000s, early 2000s. And then um, the, to my left, about seven miles, is the one that happened in 2018. Yeah, yeah, but exciting times, maybe more exciting than you want in those times. Um, so I'm going to read your biography. You can find this at your website, uh, mindofmarlin.com. So I'm reading, uh, Marlin is the quintessential Renaissance man, has led a life that reads like a novel, running away with the circus, seeing the world with his juggling act, living in a treehouse in the jungle, writing and illustrating a book, dreaming up an illuminated show that would go on to play internationally, uh, inventing a one-of-a-kind toy and building a homestead where he lives with a solar-powered uh, house. Uh, so tell us just briefly a little bit about your background. Very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, well, the running away with the circus, um, I got hired as a clown, and then after three days got fired. And when you get fired as a clown, that you have an existential crisis as <laughs> into what am I good for? So I found out the next day I got hired on as an elephant groom. So for a year, I took care of uh, a herd of uh, performing elephants. Um, Then after that, I went back to Houston, Texas, where I was living, and took up uh, my craft again as a juggler and was able to start making rent by age 19. And a a documentarian, uh, Bruce Bryant, did a documentary of me um, back then called The Street Juggler, which is uh, you can find on my website as well. It was a half-hour documentary. Then I did some, uh, got my first exposure on national television, Don Kirshner's rock concert in 1977, toured with the uh, magician Doug Henning in 78, and then became widely known in the magic community. And then from there, went on to create my own one-man show, uh, toured around the United States, doing colleges, universities, comedy clubs. And then I went on to play cruise ships, Atlantic City, Las Vegas, uh, worked with a ballet company out of L.A. Uh, with a symphony. I uh, was commissioned to create interpretive juggling to classical music. And then at the height of my career, um, I was uh, traveling back and forth between L.A. and uh, Las Vegas and uh, wa- watched uh, Haley's Comet go by and had this epiphany about, my, you know, this, this goes by unnoticed every night because people's lights are on. And then not long after that, I actually walked away from my career to reinvent myself and uh, moved to the the jungles of Hawaii and built and lived in a treehouse with no electricity for five years and had um, 
some very um, memorable moments about darkness and light, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the lava flow down the street and had this epiphany about all life being drawn to light, which had me create uh, the show Luma, Art and Darkness, which was uh, a theatrical production done entirely in the dark. Uh, we started developing that work back in 91 and then actually started touring it as a cast production uh, a few years later. And uh, it went on to play five continents and over 300 performing arts centers across the United States. And it was all done to to raise awareness to the loss of our night skies due to light pollution. So uh, people sitting in the dark, uh, people often don't have the opportunity to experience darkness. And those who do live out in a rural area uh, live under the assumption, doesn't everybody see this? And that's truly not the case at all. Uh, you, I was watching your TEDx talk, uh, TEDx Sun Valley, I believe it is. You can find that uh, at, I believe, at mightofmarlin.com as well. And it's interesting, you, you illustrate the fact that we're uncomfortable with darkness, right? You come out on stage, and then you have them yes. turn out the lights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The first, my first light is, uh, I want to uh, uh, talk to you about light, and then the lights go out. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden people are wondering what's going on, and as astronomers say, it takes like 35 minutes for the human eye to adjust to the darkness, and I say that to my audience. And then wait this pause of like 10 seconds, which seems like an eternity. And then ask the audience, are you waiting? And they're, you know, thinking that, oh, we're going to be sitting in the dark for the next 35 minutes. So, yeah, uh, we have a superstitious fear of the dark that goes back to the time when we were living in caves, because, you know, when you walked away from the light of the fire and out of the darkness, you might not come back. Um, mm. Let's see, do, do we have you, Marlon? Yes, I'm, I'm oh, still oh, here. Oh, sorry, sorry, you, you cut out just a little bit there. Go ahead. No, uh, that was the end oh, of that, my that, well, that was the, okay, great. <laughs> I, I was, I feared for the technology. I, I guess I'm afraid it's going, so it's going from Hawaii to here, and I, but I, I should, I should be uh, more, uh, you know, secure in the technology. Uh, so um, t- you, you open your book um, with, uh, or near the beginning of the book, you talk about Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh, we're, we're, and you say we're very familiar with the first stanza of that poem. Yes, but, yes. But, but none of us know about the rest of the poem. Yeah, uh, that's in the introduction, and I thought that that would be a good way to really um, illustrate how disconnected we are. So we all know the first stanza, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are, Up Above the World So High, Like a Diamond in the Sky, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are. But the rest of it, which we never, ever learned, I certainly did it, goes, when the blazing sun is gone, when he nothing shines upon. Then you show your little light, twinkle, twinkle, all the night. Then the traveler in the dark thanks you for your tiny spark. He could not see which way to go if you did not twinkle so. In the dark blue sky you keep, and often through my curtains peep, for you never shut your eye till the sun is in the sky. Tis your bright and tiny spark lights the traveler in the dark, Though I know not what you are, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And this was published in 1806 when people needed the stars for their survival. I mean, to literally be able to find your way home or get to the next place that you were traveling to, you needed to see the stars. But we haven't had that need for so long, and I think that's the reason why we forgot to use the rest of the, um, teach the rest of the, 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 the story. 
So you say that uh, it's in the span of a single lifetime, light pollution stemming from artificial light or artificial light at night. Alan uh, has severed our connection with stars. Uh, so define uh, artificial light at night. Um, artificial light at night is anything that we basically are creating. Um, the, the technology of the wick existed for, you know, over 70,000 years. And then uh, what happened was Amy Argon invented a circular wick. Uh, many people might know this as a hurricane lamp. Um, and that circular wick was uh, six to ten times brighter than just a typical candle wick. So that demanded a, a, great, uh, a greater need for fuel. And that fuel became whale oil. And at the beginning of the 19th century, there was, you know, thousands and thousands of ships scouring the planet uh, looking for whales to boil them down and turn them into light. And had we not invented kerosene, whales would have been hunted to extinction just to make light. And then when um, Edison invented his bulb, in the first year there was 400 light bulbs that it was powering. Within the second year there were 10,000 light bulbs that his dynamo was powering, the Pearl Street Station in New York City. And that number's continued to increase ever since. Now the real explosion happened um, back in the, the 60s and 70s, maybe the 70s. I remember when I was a kid, uh, in the, I was uh, living in Florida, growing up in Florida uh, in my early childhood years, and our backyard was per- pitch black. And we remember when the first streetlight went into the neighborhood, we all thought it was quite novel. Uh, and then what happened is more and more lights started to come online with population growth, comes lighting, and then with the advent of LED lighting, we all thought, oh, look, we'll save a lot of energy, but um, we're just simply making more light now than we ever have before. And now 80% of North Americans can no longer see uh, the Milky Way. 60% of Europeans can't see the Milky Way. And uh, about 99% of the world's population uh, in North America and, and uh, Europe lives in, under some form of light pollution. So that drives people to see the sky as it used to be before we um, washed it out with Allen, artificial light at night. I want to underline that 80% of Americans can't see the Milky Way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, North Americans. That yeah. would include yeah. Canada, but, yeah. you know, most of the population is here. But, yeah, that that's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, that is astonishing. And so uh, that's that drives astrotourism, I guess. You know, back in the day, I guess our grandfather's time, uh, this would have seemed ludicrous, right? Uh, you, you, you wouldn't have to travel <laughs> to, to see the Milky Way. Now you do, I guess. Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Alan is both the driver of astrotourism and, at the same time, its biggest threat. So, so, so you t- know, this is, you know, what's, what's happening, for instance, like in Idaho, they just uh, certified the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve, and Boise is having explosive growth. Well, it's only 76 miles away as the crow flies. And as Boise continues to grow the light and the glow on the horizon will continue to glow. And, um, you know, light pollution can travel up to, um, you know, well over 100 miles away, 150 miles away. Mm. So what what uh, kinds of things does astrotourism embrace? What, uh, what sorts of things people go, I guess, you know, obviously to see the dark skies, see the Milky Way, etc. What else? Oh, yeah. Well, there's lots of things to see up there. And, and, and technology has has changed t- 
tourism. It's one of the things I write about in my book. You know, uh, back in the, the 50s, uh, 40s and 50s, scuba, uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, was only used by a couple of people. Now the, the dive industry, uh, dive tourism, is huge. It's all over the world. So that technology changed uh, the tourism, as it is with astrotourism. Um, it used to be called astronomy tourism, and that was back in the 40s. And it was just astronomers that would go out to look at these celestial events, whether it's a, a lunar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, um, going to travel to see the Aurora Borealis. And now, um, with Valerie Simic's book, uh, Lonely Planets, Dark Skies, um, Guide to the Dark Skies, she includes things like um, space launches, um, space reentries, uh, places like CERN, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, space-themed hotels. Um, so I've, I've expanded it by also including um, sundials, which I call star clocks in my book, um, astronomical clocks, which are truly marbles. We can talk about that later. And, and, and megaliths, um, these earthen and stone uh, constructions that were built by the ancients that were aligned to uh, star movement or solstices. Um, other things to see in the sky are, of course, meteor showers. And I um, had a, um, wanted to bring up moons and full moons because a lot of um, astro-tourists and a lot of astronomers go, oh, the full moon, that's, you know, that's, that's the bane because you can't see as many stars. But for people traveling from a city, they don't really have the opportunity to experience the, the, the ghoulish and ghastly glow of a, of, a, of a night illuminated by the moon. It's just truly magical and, and romantic all at once. Um, there's other celestial phenomenon like sun dogs, um, uh, green flash, uh, zodiacal glows. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, with the meteor showers, which are pretty consistent throughout the year, they may fluctuate a little bit. There's those to go see as well. And, of course, you'd have to be, you know, well away from city lights to be able to really experience and take those in. One of the things you write about in the book, um, this is a chapter, Where, When, What, I believe. Um, you talk about satellites. Um, and yes. you, you know, uh, on the one hand, um, you could consider this, it <laughs> could be considered space pollution, right? It's very useful, satellites. On the other hand, you, you can view these these things. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. I did a, uh, a river rafting trip uh, through Cataract Canyon. And uh, as soon as the sun set, I was just, you know, spotting lots and lots of these. And that's the best time to, to watch a satellite is right after the sun set. And we're just barely in the, the shadow of the Earth. But high in the atmosphere, the sun is still shining. So that's the best time to see the reflected light on on, on satellites, and then the same thing uh, early in the morning hours. And then you can also go online and sign up for the, uh, the International Space Station flyover. And I get a little notice on my text messages, you know, that says, okay, the ISS is going to fly over you at, at this time of day or not at this time of night, and it's going to, you know, start in the northeast and travel to the southwest, and it'll be visible for five minutes. So, I, you know, I set my alarm, go out and, and look for it. But the, the, the flip side of that is um, there's, because there's more and more satellites going up, 
it's starting to impede a lot of astronomers' ability to take, you know, time-lapse photographs of uh, the night sky for, for research. And so that has become kind of a, a big issue. Um, you know, Elon Musk is launching, a, you know, tens of thousands of these, and they've already shown up in a number of um, astronomical photographs uh, from different uh, observatories around the world. So the, the community is speaking to him about, you know, can you maybe paint these things with non-reflective light so they don't so much get in the way? And, uh, you know, there's, you know, tens of thousands of pieces of junk uh, just floating around out in space right now that will, you know, continue to uh, get in the way as we send more and more, um, you know, usable and still functioning satellites and stations up aloft. And that junk just uh, stays there, revolves around the whatever's revolving around, I guess, right? Yeah, it, it stays in whatever orbit it is. And, uh, it, you know, once something loses its uh, um, functionality, it just stays up there. Now, I've, I've, you know, I've read some research that there, you know, there's some companies that are looking to go up into space and start nudging some of these things into a orbit that deteriorates. So eventually that will cause it to burn up in our atmosphere and create quite the light show. So I'm hoping that they'll coordinate that and let people know that, you know, such and such a uh, satellite, which has been in disuse for so many years, will be plunging into uh, the Earth's atmosphere at this time of night or day or whatever, so people can uh, go out and uh, check it out. That'll be a new form of astrotourism. Yeah, yeah. satellites burn up. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I was. I guess you. Yeah, just nudge them, then they would go and burn up in the atmosphere. That's the way to take care of it. I was envisioning maybe we'd have to appoint a, uh, you know, a space garbage force, which would go out and clean up. You know, just like people <laughs> clean up the streets, but uh, uh, maybe nudging into the sure. atmosphere is, is a better way to do it. Um, I want to get into eclipse chasing, uh, the, the 2024 Great North American Eclipse, uh, and, you know, and a bunch uh, else, and uh, tell us about uh, some other uh, very, very interesting things we can see, but uh, I want to take a break first. We are talking with Marlon. Uh, his book is called Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers in the Dark Sky Movement, and that's out and available, and you can find him at mindofmarlon.com. He's joining us from his home in the Big Island of Hawaii, and we'll have more following this break. Do you have spring fever after what seemed like a never-ending winter? Itching to get outside and plant something? Well, get excited because spring is here and the time has come to get your fingers dirty. Literally. As soon as the soil in your garden is workable, you can plant all your cold-tolerant crops like onions, peas, spinach, broccoli, kale, lettuce, and more. If you plant while the weather is favorable, but then Mother Nature decides to bring the cold again, it's all okay. Cold, snow, frost, wind, you name it, those plants are hardy enough to handle it all. And if you need a little color for your bleak landscape, a few flowers can handle the cold just as well, especially pansies and primroses. Take advantage of the great weather when we have it this spring, since you never know how long it will last. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Anderson Seed and Garden, offering fruit trees, berry and bare root plants, located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at andersonseedandgarden.com and on Facebook. Thanks for joining us for Access U-Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Marlon. And his book is Astro Tourism, Scar Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. You can find him at mindofmarlin.com. 
So, Marlon, um, I want to talk about dark skies some more. Uh, there's probably a gradation, right, of dark skies. As soon as you leave a city, I suppose, it gets a little darker. Um, but there, there are probably some places that are, I don't know what the official definition is, absolutely dark, and I'm guessing that would equal remote. Uh, yeah, that would equal remote, and um, uh, the there's a in the book or you anybody who's listening can look up a, a, the Bortle scale. That's B O R T L E, and that shows the different gradations of light pollution from what your sky would look like in an inner city to what it would look like under a completely pristine night. And of course, the further away from um, artificial light you go the more stars you're going to see. Um, so I think there are some fairly close to us here in Utah. I know there's a certified dark sky reserve in Idaho. Are there some in Utah? I think there are some, some good places oh. in Utah. You've got a lot of dark sky parks. Uh, the International Dark Sky Association uh, started certifying places uh, back in 2001. And it's a, it's a couple-year process because... You have to get a buy-in from the stakeholders and local businesses and, um, you know, be able to track down all of the places where there might be some light uh, pollution or light trespass. Um, and so uh, getting that certification is, is a big deal. Arches was one of the first places to get it. And, um, um, yeah, Utah has got a, a, a huge um a huge swath of dark sky, some of the best because it's also it's high and it's dry, which also creates for uh, great viewing. By the way, I pulled up, I just uh, Googled dark skies in Utah, and it took me to visitutah.com, Utah's tourism uh, place, which is uh, kind of what we're talking about here, right? And uh, and uh, little uh, points on the map, there's a bunch of places uh, in Utah that are certified dark sky parks. Um, so... Uh, under the heading of astrotourism, um, of course, stargazing would be kind of the classic uh, thing. We talked about looking at uh, satellites. Uh, what else would uh, would folks uh, travel places to look at? Well, you know, when you when you finally get further away from uh, the night sky, um, I mean, excuse me, when you finally, you know, when you get further away from a a, a, a light polluted area, let's say Salt Lake City. <clears throat> and you go further out, then you're able to, um, you know, take in, you know, great swaths of the Milky Way galaxy, which is, you know, just billions of stars, as Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions. And, you know, for a, a lot of folks, they don't give their, um, themselves enough time to allow their eyes to adjust to the darkness. And there is... You know, the, the, the first uh, tranche of um, visibility will come after about um, 25 to 30 minutes. But your eyes don't fully, fully adjust uh, for at least an hour or so. And then you'll start to see more stars that you, you had no idea that were, that were up there. And what I like to tell people to do is, you know, you, you, you lay on your back because that's the best way to view and, and don't focus on any particular part of the sky. So that allows your eyes the, to take in more of it. 
and the sky has a tendency to sort of flatten out. And with that kind of soft focus or not really focusing on any particular thing, you'll start to notice things moving like the satellites, and that's how you spot them. You know, to bring in a small pair of binoculars, you increase the number of stars that you can see 50-fold. We can only see um, about 4,000, a little more than 4,000 uh, stars, depending upon which hemisphere we're standing in. There's about a little over 9,000 stars that are visible to the naked eye, both in the north and southern hemisphere. And that number um, was uh, put down in a catalog of stars that was started uh, several decades ago. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, there's the comet that goes by every once in a while, in which we just got to see uh, the last one that went by Neowise. And I'm sure the folks there in uh, Utah had a great opportunity to see it. Um, and, and I, and I want to mention that the, the reason why I thought that it would be good to be on this program, because you have so many dark skies, the book uh, helps those individuals who would be looking to uh, service the astro-tourist. Um, there's been a huge rise in uh, Airbnb listings that say, you know, there's a telescope here um, or there's a dark sky here. So more and more people are starting to tap into that specifically. Um, and then in, uh, within the, uh, the, the Colorado Plateau, uh, the number of um, uh, people coming to see it, I just wanted, this is a little quote from a study that was done by um, a couple of economists out of the University of uh, Missouri, uh, David Mitchell and Terrell Galloway. And they write, uh, and they write that um, um, the Colorado Plateau, over the next 10 years, visitors will spend nearly $2.5 billion, that's with the B, visiting the National Park Services parks in the Dark Sky Cooperative trying to see a, a dark sky at night. This additional $2.45 billion in spending creates $1.68 billion in additional value added for the local state economies. The total effect of all of this is the additional spending to create an additional 52,257 jobs that increase wages in the state uh, by over $194 million. So because it necessitates staying over a night to participate in dark sky tourism, um, that's going to... Uh, spread that tourism dollar into all of the other uh, vendors in any given particular location, whether it's a restaurant, a gas station, a gift shop, um, and it goes on and on. It, it says here, for those staying in motels outside the park, the amount is a little over $270 uh, additionally spent. Um, in other words, inducing visitors to stay overnight can increase spending seven several fold. <clears throat> and uh, I imagine there's room for growth in this industry. Uh, unfortunately, as, as artificial light at night increases, uh, probably increases the demand for this kind of uh, astrotourism. Absolutely. Um, and, and one of the things that the Internet, uh, I'm an ambassador for the Dark Sky for the International Astronomical Union and the International Dark Sky Association. And we're, we're uh, advocating and teaching people how to use outdoor lighting intelligently. We're never, none of us are given any lessons in lighting design. We're not aware that the light is bleeding off of our property and through in, into somebody else's windows. You know, for instance, uh, Salt Lake City recently implemented a um, lights out program that turns out 
the lights on a lot of their buildings during migratory periods because they found out that the birds were getting exhausted and confused uh, from all of the lights uh, reflecting off of the, the buildings. So now they turn off the lights. So with knowledge comes action. And a lot of the um, lights that were flooding the market, these white LEDs, have a very high blue wavelength. And it's that blue wavelength that is so harmful to the environment and to human health. I'm sure all of your listeners have probably noticed that some headlights seem a little bit blue now. Those are those white LED lights. Practically everybody that I've spoken to comment on that and go, yeah, they're really glaring. Well, uh, it turns out that that short wavelength is actually impacting the back of the retina. And the, the French version of OSHA, or the uh, um, FDA, has found that these blue wavelength LEDs, the, uh, these blue LEDs that emit this kind of light, can actually create permanent damage to the retina. So we advocate trying to move towards a warmer light. Um, the American Medical Association uh, put out public guidance in 2016 saying no outdoor lighting should be, or any lighting should be over 3,000 Kelvin. And if you could move towards a 2,200 Kelvin, which is a warm amber, which is what pretty much people have been living under for the last 50 years, high-pressure sodium lights. And so those kinds of lights don't cause the pupil to constrict as much. You know, if you, we think that our eyes evolved with firelight over the however millions of years that humans have walked the planet, you know, that number keeps changing depending upon which archaeological dig you have, that's our ocular nerves were uh, evolved uh, around using firelight at night. So that's why we find these warm colors as being more comfortable to be under. So as we move towards those warmer LEDs and warmer lighting, we're able to preserve our skies. So it's possibly to light our streets safely and still see the stars. In your TED Talk, you talk about how you uh, early on talked about light pollution, and then you evolved talking about pollution that comes about because of light. And you talk about wasted light. I wonder if you could give us some of those stats. It was pretty spectacular what you presented. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, uh, such a, tr- a tremendous amount of CO2 emissions are created every year from outdoor lighting, outdoor residential lighting. And 30% of that is wasted because it goes up, and that's, that creates sky glow. You know, any kind of building lighting, billboard lighting, anytime a light is pointed up, most of it, not most of it, excuse me, 30% of it is going to spill off of the object that's being lit, whether it's a monument, a sign, a building, and then travel upward. So that's basically wasted light. And then other people leave lights on for no particular reason. And the metaphor that I use is a light that is left on with nobody using it is no different than an oven being left on with no food in it. So it's up to us if we're really uh, wanting to be conscientious about climate change to lift a finger and flip off the switch and, and turn off unnecessary light. And um, I think what I've kind of noticed is as people start to turn off their lights, there's uh, the body starts to relax more. Um, 
you know, artificial light, and uh, it throws off our circadian rhythms. And these high Kelvin temperature lights have been linked to, um, through the American Medical Association, it has found through studies that it's linked to obesity, diabetes, melatonin suppression, uh, sleeplessness, um, and, and obviously, you know, some forms of cancer. So obviously, we are meant to rest at night and have the experience of darkness, which is very calming. Um, and, you know, when, when you don't have that, you know, people who live in cities and they can't escape the darkness, you know, it creates, a, I, I notice for myself, a certain form of agitation. And it's one of the reasons why I live out here in an extremely rural area. It's 20 minutes to the nearest town, and, and I'm off the grid. And, you know, I really enjoy being able to experience the cycles of night. Like, for instance, last night, it was it's close to the full moon. It's bright enough to read by. And, and travelers in the old day used to time their trips to market on either side of the full moon because they could still, you know, drive their carts and horses at night and, and see perfectly fine. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with more with sure. Marlon. Uh, his new book is Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. Uh, and you can find it at mindofmarlon.com. We'll have more following this. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll spend a languid hour in a Cuban cafe listening to acoustic guajiras and boleros and passionate guarachos. Como en cada mañana, me despierto en tus brazos. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Café Cubano, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have about 10 minutes or so left in this conversation with Marlon about his new book, Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. And you can find him at his website, mindofmarlon.com. He's joining us from the Big Island uh, in Hawaii. Uh, so, Marlon, it's right there in the subtitle to your book. I want to make sure we talk about this, Eclipse Chasers. There are folks who uh, who, who chase eclipses, uh, and it is a pretty spectacular experience. Uh, we had an eclipse uh, at least near here in, in northern Utah a couple, two or three years ago. And uh, where we are here in Logan, it was only a partial eclipse, but it was enough to, to give me... Uh, you know the the a, a taste of it. And the temperature dropped. <laughs> uh, it was it, it the the you know the sun was mostly uh, covered. It was a pretty spectacular experience. I can see why people chase eclipses. Uh, tell me about this. Well, uh, my first experience uh, was back in the the seventies when I saw the eclipse uh, go through uh, a part of Minnesota, and uh, for me, you know, seeing that happen. You know, we're used to seeing the, the stars slowly come out one at a time. 
and we have to, you know, traverse um, uh, civil twilight, nautical twilight, and then into astronomical twilight. And that takes, you know, a period of time, depending upon where you are uh, on the planet. But when the lights go out all at once and all the stars appear instantly, I can understand why people thought the world was going to end, because it's, an, an, a, it's a startling, startling event. And uh, the... It, the the last one that went through 2017 was the most widely viewed event in uh, the history of the planet, and um, are are you there? Yes, I'm here. Y- yes, it. So uh, yeah. The next. Go ahead. The, the, the next one that's going to happen is in 2024, and is going to pass through a huge swath of the American population. And one of the things that I foresee as being uh, something that the locales need to address for people to really be able to take in that phenomenon is most city lights are on photosensors. So when the sun covers the moon and the sky becomes dark, all the streetlights are going to come on. So people will lose that opportunity to really experience you know, all of the stars in the sky. These are people living under a dome of light. Um, and it turns out that uh, when the Halley's Comet went by, Mayor Koch of New York City had a, a, a good portion of the grid in some of the boroughs turn off the lights so people could see uh, Halley's Comet. And I'm hoping that the people and the mayors and the the, the, the folks who are in the path of the eclipse in 2024 will address that so that the people in the path of the eclipse will not have to, you know, endure streetlights coming on during this once-in-a-lifetime kind of event. Yeah, that would... <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that happens, too. Uh, so do we know uh, Do we know right now, do we know, do we know the path? Do we know if we're, you know, can oh, yeah. we find out if we're going to be near yeah. it? Yeah, you can, you, can, you can go online and just uh, punch in, um, you know, um, North American Eclipse 2024, and it'll bring up a map. It'll, it starts in um, uh, Mexico and then travels through um, Texas, Oklahoma, um, up through Illinois, and, um, you know, right through the, the, the center of the United States. But, yeah, it's easy to find a map, on lo- a map online. Just, uh, just uh, Google that or do a search. Yeah. Hey, before I forget, yeah, go ahead. I want to let the, the, li- the listeners know, if you want to order the book, the publisher is offering a 20% discount. Um, am I allowed to make this plug? Y- yes, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, they offer a 20% discount, and the phone number is 800-632-0880. That's 800-632-0880. And use the code ASTRO2021 to get the 20% discount. All right. Very good. By the way, I pulled up this. (laughs) Great. Uh, I pulled this up. Great American Eclipse, uh, April of 2024. And it uh, looks like probably the closest place to Utah. You'd have to go to Texas 
uh, to get the the action. And then it goes up through the Midwest and to the Northeast. But uh, you can you can find that out and make your plans to to travel to be in the path of that that eclipse. Uh, we do have an email that's uh, come in. I want to read this. This is from Tom uh, out in Vernal. He says uh, many people seem to think that you can't see at night and living in brightly lit boxes when you step into the night you are blind. But after five minutes of adjustment, unless you're in a forest or a coal mine, you can normally see perfectly well, even by starlight. By the light of a full moon, it's positively bright. But you can't see that when all the buildings around you are harshly and excessively illuminated. So underlining what we've been saying yes. here. Yes. And, and, and it's, 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 that, this is one of the disconnects that modern man has by living under a dome of light and, and in um, so much um, lighted area. They lose uh, the, 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 the magic and the soul-touching experience of being in the night. And, um, you know, the oldest stories that are ever told are the stories about the stars. And uh, just very briefly, um, I'm working with a, a producer, William Martens, on a television series, a one-hour weekly documentary called The Astro Tourist, where I will be hosting... And we'll be traveling to different parts of the, the world. And one of the episodes that's planned is going to be at Arches. And we'll explore not only dark skies, but the stories that different cultures tell. And there's so many of them. And they're all just wonderful. And we'll bring those to life with special effects and CG. We'll um, explore different celebrations that are tied to uh, celestial events, which most of our holidays are. Um, and talk a little bit about the Zodiac and how uh, the influence of the stars have permeated pretty much all of humanity. Civilizations grew up because of our ability to know when to plant and when to harvest, when to shear the sheep, when the fish would run, when the um, animals would migrate. And so we want to uh, bring back and retell some of these stories before they're lost forever. Uh, just have a couple of minutes left here in the conversation. Uh, I want to end with uh, maybe your experience out there in Hawaii. You're, you're off the grid. You're living in a dark sky environment. What uh, what are the rest of us missing out on uh, that, that uh, maybe you're experiencing out there? Um, well, you know, a lot of folks in your listening uh, area, um, I'm sure, live not far from some really beautiful dark skies there. I'm on the coast, so we don't get a crystal clear night all of the time. And because I am down at sea level, um, then, you know, there's a, a lot more moisture in the air. And even in this remote area, I'm still having to educate people to the use of outdoor lighting. You know, I walk around my neighborhood at night and I'll see somebody's light on and it's blaring out onto the street. And, you know, again, People are unaware of how their lights are impacting those around them. But you know, the, the, there is uh, uh, an astronomical uh, industry out here with the telescopes on Mauna Kea and over on Haleakala and radio telescopes up on Mauna Loa. And, you know, at those altitudes, there's less and less water in the air, so the stars become even more vibrant and more uh, stunning. So the folks in Utah, you have a really precious, precious resource there. As I like to say, you're, you're sitting under a gold mine. <laughs> and uh, I hope that the folks there continue to uh, advocate for, you know, 
curbing uh, artificial light at night and finding ways to protect the dark skies that are over Utah. And again, you can just Google Dark Skies Utah, and it pulls up some uh, certified dark sky uh, areas that you can go and go and visit here in Utah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Marlon. His book is Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement, and his website is mindofmarlon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, coming up uh, tomorrow on the program, a conversation with uh, Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. Uh, she has a memoir out. Um, she is the only immigrant uh, currently in the U.S. Senate. Uh, at the age of seven, her mother, escaping an abusive marriage, uh, sailed with uh, Maisie and a brother uh, to Hawaii. And uh, Maisie Hirono uh, tells her mother's story, her own immigrant story, and there's much else that we talk about. That's tomorrow on the program, and uh, we hope you join us then. We'll go out today with uh, an interesting uh, feature report uh, from a, uh, a student uh, out there in Weber State uh, University. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected everyone, but factors like age, race, and pre-existing health conditions can greatly impact the severity of the pandemic's effects. Logan Stacy is a Weber State University student. During his fall uh, semester, he explored the feelings and experiences of young immunocompromised college students returning to their studies and social life during the public health crisis. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. We are in the midst of a serious pandemic. A public health risk. Pandemic has affected my life. It's very anxiety inducing. Over the course of 2020, the world has gone through the coronavirus pandemic. To keep the public safe, preventative measures have been put in place in the form of mask mandates, stay-at-home orders, social distancing, and limiting the amount of people who can be included in social functions. For most of the world, this is something that if they got sick, they'd be able to survive. But there are some in our society who do not have that luxury. There are people who are immunocompromised. My name is Katie Sindrich, and I have an autoimmune disease called lupus. Hey, my name is Tyler. I'm 20 years old. Yeah, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. My name is Daxon Gale, and I'm 20 years old. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. For them, this pandemic is more dangerous, where if they get sick, it could cost them their life. For them, Coronavirus is more than just a pandemic. A lot of the main problem that comes along with these younger people who have these autoimmune diseases and having this pandemic is an added societal pressure and want for them to still live a normal college life, to still socialize with others and date and get out there and try new things. They have this added societal pressure to participate in those things, but also at the same time have to be careful because it could be a very serious medical condition if they were to contract coronavirus. A lot of the common issues that were seen between these people were they were frustrated and anxious and really want to go and live that common life that they're expected to live at this age. And they see other people living, even during the pandemic, as much as they can. But they themselves can't participate as much as they want to, because it could spell their end.
Like I was saying, it's limiting my social life, I guess. Uh, I'm trying to be careful so I don't get sick, but at the same time, I'm not, like, dating's a lot harder. I'm not really meeting as many new people. I don't see, you know, friends, family, so it kind of makes that social aspect of college a little tougher. It's especially more frustrating for them to witness those people in society who are giving pushbacks towards the mandates and regulations put in place by the government to help protect the main public. Things like protests about mask mandates, people declaring they're not going to follow social distancing, still going out of their house when they have contracted coronavirus or when they're feeling symptoms. These things cause a lot of fear within the people who are younger and immunocompromised, where they want to be safe and they want this pandemic to be over so that they can continue with their lives and grow and become the person who they want to be. But people are protesting the things keeping everyone's safe. One of the main factors keeping these people who are more at risk from participating as fully as their peers is the fear of contracting the disease and not knowing who their peers have been around. If you look at the demographics on COVID-19 cases in the state of Utah, the Utah Department of Health attributes 25% of all cases in the state towards people from the ages of 15 to 24 years. A lot of that can be attributed to people of this age range continuing to participate in that college life that is expected of them, even though the CDC or Center for Disease Control and Prevention recommends wearing masks and social distancing and washing your hands and not touching your face. They try to still live their own life as much as they can, but may not follow all aspects of the CDC recommendations so that they can try to live that college life. Because of this, it is more terrifying of a prospect for the people who are immunocompromised to associate with their peers for not knowing how safe they've been before and giving them an increased risk of infection. And as most of them say, if everyone were to abide by these recommendations, it would be easier for them to live this life, easier for immunocompromised people to participate fully in the areas of this college life and date and meet new people, even during the pandemic. But they can't due to others not following recommendations and becoming more of a risk towards their own life. And if I could say one thing to those who aren't helping out as best they can um, because they don't, they think it's a hoax, even at the end of the day, if it's a hoax, you took, took the effort to try to look out for other people and not just yourself. And no matter what, at the end of the day, that's a good thing in my eyes. Don't put other people's lives in dangers. Like it's, it's not worth it. It's really not. And I, I think that a lot of people are going to look back at their lives and look back at themselves in like 15 years and be mad at themselves because they were being stupid in all honesty. If you want the number of deaths to go down and people in the hospitals and stuff, then you're gonna just be more responsible, I guess, and wear a mask and help other people to prevent the spread being more careful, right? Because um, people taking it home to their, their grandparents or people that are immunocompromised, right? Save lives, make life easier for everyone. For more information on the coronavirus, how to help prevent spread, ways to protect yourself and others against the coronavirus, go to cdc.gov or coronavirus.utah.gov to learn more.
President Biden had barely taken the oath of office when he was faced with an immigration crisis. Hundreds of families arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border every day. Truth of the matter is, they're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. We go to the mountains of Guatemala to find out who's coming and why on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. What is it like to work in the warehouse of the retailer that we all order from? Go to this section, this region, find a Malibu Barbie. Got 15 seconds to find a region that has the shelf that has the bin that has the Barbie. This is like a bin full of crap. Products seem haphazardly stored next to each other. Why does this product exist? I asked my supervisor, can I pee? And he was like, of course, this isn't China, but it's going to hurt your numbers. That's on the next Radio Lab. Tomorrow morning at 10 on UPR. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. In 2005, a man from Tennessee went to trial for murder. The killer was in the courtroom, but he wasn't the man on the stand. You know, he called me, he said, Mama, they're trying to say I killed somebody. He said, I did not do that. That's this week on Latino USA. Tuesday mornings at 11 on Utah Public Radio.